Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. We have invited back New York City Council Member Keith Powers. Well, at the time he was on previously, he was just about to be elected, and we predicted here at A Better World that he would be elected. And in a sense, he's now um, stepped into the shoes of Dan Gorodnik, who's also been a guest on A Better World Radio and TV. And uh, Keith has picked up those reins and is running hard with them and really have has already hit the ground running and starting to really make a difference already in even just his first number of months in the position. So it's really a pleasure now to have Keith back with us today to speak to us about the kinds of activities he's been engaged in since he's been in office and what he foresees for the future. We'll go over a couple of specifics as well while he's here in our show today, and you'll get a chance to learn about what it's like to be young, vigorous, and full of energy and enthusiasm to make a difference in the world in the body politic in New York City. So, Keith, council member, so glad to have you. Thank you for having me back. And Absolutely. I, and thank, you for your, thank you for your prediction that I was going to win. It did come through, and I'm happy to be here. Yes, let me, let me just make sure this is working all properly. And there we go. Okay, great. Well, yes, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. And I guess I'm becoming a predictor, among other things. <laughs> Good news. Good news. So, uh, as I was saying, you hit the ground running. And what have you been doing primarily since you've been in office? So one thing you realize right away in this job uh, when you get going is that you really have to be in a lot of different places at the same time. And I really, but I actually do enjoy being able to see. I have a very big district, everything from Stuyvesant Town all the way to the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So I've enjoyed being able to see all the different parts of my district and the issues that affect them. Um, you know, one of the things that I was proud to do in my 100th day was to pass my first bill in the city council, which was signed into law. That bill actually strengthened our sexual harassment laws here in New York City. I thought personally it provided an important protection for employees who were not covered by sexual harassment protections up until that point, which is really small employees in any small business or even those people that worked maybe as a domestic worker or as an independent an independent con a contractor. So we really wanted to strengthen the law and give more people a protection, and we did. And that, and that was signed into law uh, shortly after that. We've also introduced – There's been the time for it with the Me Too movement and everything else going on. Harvey Weinstein, totally. et cetera, et cetera, has set the tone. So I'm, was yeah. it fairly simple to get that through? It wasn't, it wasn't difficult because of the timing of it. And that's one lesson you learn is that timing plays such an essential role in bringing issues to the forefront, mm -hmm. and especially in a, in a legislative process. So it did bring it to the forefront. But we've been, I've actually been working on introducing this bill going back to my election when I heard, even sort of at the beginning of the Me Too movement, that some employees in New York City didn't have appropriate coverage. So we put that bill in, I think, on the first day. We got passed on the 100th day, and it was signed into law somewhere right after the 100th day. So that was exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. That's very good news. Thank you. And I think it actually, that's one of those things we know will have a meaningful impact in terms yeah. of protecting people. The um, other thing we did kind of early on was we I introduced with my staff, we were working on it, a, a package of bills to improve our elections in the city. Um, coming out of that 
right into the new year. Campaign finance. Campaign finance. Yeah. So we. That's one of my items. Oh yeah. Very so good. so we put in a big package, and we have more, I think, to come that would uh, make it easier for people to run for office. We, I, I am a really of the believer that not only do we have to make it easier for people to vote and make it easier for people to participate and to um, and to be active in, in politics, but if they make the decision that they want to run for office and do something more impactful, that they have an, an, a, a path to doing that. And so they, well, one of the ways you do that is you make it easier to run and you make it easier to take big, you know, really big money out of the political system. And so there's a lot of ways to do that. One of the, yes. one of the things I thought was that in New York City we have, I think, the model campaign finance, and in New York City, not in New York State, the, New York, the model campaign finance system by which we have public financing of campaigns where small donations are encouraged. We have limits on contributions for people doing business in the city of New York, like people who are lobbying or people that are uh, have contracts before the city. And we, and we really create a, a model where I know we have spending limits still. So with all of that, that's a good system to be, to, to be modeled throughout the world. But what we want to do is we don't want to just stop there. We want to continue to make sure that we look at it, we evaluate it. So after I won, the me first thing I thought was, well, what would I do differently? And so we introduced a bunch of bills, a package of bills that would make it just a little bit easier to get into the public financing system, to run for office, to look at small donors as a way to get your full your full funding for your campaign. And and I think we are going to look at the campaign finance system in some level of detail in the next couple months, in the next year, and I hope that we'll adopt some of the bills that I introduced. And there was one more I introduced just actually a little bit later after that package, which was around child, was actually around child, child care. care. Yeah. And it's an issue that I read that. Yeah, so it's an issue that came up at the federal level, where candidates' work became permitted under the uh, Federal Elections Commission to spend money to cover child care. If you wanted to run for office and that was the barrier, you could use some of your campaign funds, like some of the money you raised from private sources, for for instance, to offer your child care. And it's it was predicated on the it was it was sort of built on the idea that a campaign matter is really important for your campaign. Maybe your treasurer is really important to your campaign, but you can't even run. You can't even have a campaign manager. You won't even you won't have a campaign manager. If you don't even have the ability to get off the ground, so you won't have a campaign. You won't have a campaign. If, if right. you have to be nursing your child, right. if you're a woman, right. at the same time as giving a speech, totally. you know, it's just asking a little too much. Totally right. So the so federal level said you're allowed to do it. At, we have to authorize. Which is it. remarkable. Which is that. remarkable, and it's unanimous shocking. decision. Unanimous decision. So that was shocking. It was really was. It actually was shocking. They're not used to. They're not known for this kind they're of. They're not liberal kind right. thinking. That is right. So we have to authorize that at the city level if we want the same thing to happen. So we put the bill in. We are now having a conversation around structuring it appropriately mm -hmm. so that it, people can will take advantage of it and will uh, and will will use it and it will be workable for people who are doing it. So that was an exciting one because. It really that like as as much as the other ones, but maybe even more so, will actually be something that will help somebody make a decision to run for office. And yes. when we look for representation and diversity, 
We talk about wanting to make sure that both, both gender or all genders are represented appropriately, that you're, we have people of different classes running, but certainly your parenting status would be one that should not prevent you, like anything else, from being, um, from being a decision in terms of whether to run. I hope, Keith, that the Federal Election Commission takes note of the other items that mm. you were talking about, such as limiting the size of campaign yeah. uh, contributions, et cetera, et cetera, so they can reform the federal picture of yeah. it because it is a disaster. Yeah. I, I know because I have had, as I'm having you on, yeah. I've had several um, third-party candidates mm. running for president of the United States right here uh, who I've interviewed for, yeah. the, for uh, the Green Party for the Justice Party, for what was called the Natural Law Party, mm. Dr. John Hagelin, and they told me what a disaster it is. And New York State is particularly difficult in this regard. New York State's campaign finance laws could be equated to having no campaign finance laws. They are they are remarkably bad. I mean, they they are filled with loopholes. They're filled with ways to contribute large sums of money from anybody, corporate or individual. Yeah. Um, they don't create much space for um, small candidates, and it really protects no, no space. No space. None. No space. Yeah. And if you want to build your campaign on $100 contributions, you can run it. You're running against somebody who, in one in one minute, can get a contribution that outsizes that, you know, immediately. So, um, I would love for the federal level to take it up. We have a long way to go before that, but I think it would show that people are driving campaigns and that people are making the contributions to support candidates and you would get a better class of candidate overwhelmingly. And Bernie Sanders was uh, a real example and an exemplar, if you will, of that on the national level. I find, ironically, Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg, you would never put them in the same category, I think, but they (laughs) both brought something to the electorate that I thought was credibility because they Michael Bloomberg funded his own campaigns, which was a, which was a weird thing. It was a personal problem. But Unusual. He, but, but he didn't take dollars from anybody, so you never had a suspicion that he was doing something for 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 an under reason. And Bernie Sanders, I think, had a lot of credibility amongst people because of the way he ran his campaign, what he talked about, but also how his fundraising was done. And I think with, and I just put those two together because they're an unusual yeah. match. But I think it gives you some credibility. When, with, with the voters to say, my money is really from the people that, or and, and, and from sources that are... And know, legislation should help to support that. Totally, absolutely. Because the tendencies are too great in the other direction. That is right, and absolutely favor right. And, 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 and it's just easier. Yeah. And it's yeah. and so we should we should make the law the reality, not ask people to you know we would like candidates to do something better than what the law allows, but we yes. but we should make the law reflect what our values are. Exactly, yeah. very much agreed. Let's move on to other things, and I'm sure. very glad that you're addressing these important issues around campaign financing. I know upon every single, mainly national election. I get queasy in my mm. stomach knowing what I do about the way it all works. Yeah. So you're addressing it here, it. and may it be an example for uh, for our national conversation. Uh, you have been dedicated to the tenants, of mm. not just Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village, but really overall, and now I'm assuming that it's for all of District 4, mm-hmm. and that would be then a reflection for the entire city. Mm. What are you doing? Have you been able to do anything in that regard just yet? So we're starting down that path. 
as a council, we were really in our budget process this year early, which is $90 billion, the size of a country, really, uh, in terms of how we spend money. We did put more money into certain agencies that deal with enforcement around housing issues because we have a series of issues with um, housing in New York City. One is supply, it is the availability of it. Two is, is it truly affordable for people? When we say it's affordable, can people actually afford what we say it, it is? Um, and then one issue is just the enforcement of it. So um, one, you know, a couple issues that pop up in the that popped up early this year. One is um, lack of availability. So one is um, um, uh, actually the first one I'll talk about is actually with Jared Kushner, the Jared Kushner issue, it actually came up again today, yeah. where his, his company was illegally deregulating apartments in New York City. They were using tricks that I'm sure are employed every single day, where they would tell one agency, we don't have any regulated tenants in our building, and they tell another agency we do. And they would tell the one agency that would potentially, potentially take more enforcement against it or put scrutinize them that they have no rent regulated tenants so they could demolish a building and evict everybody. And those type of loopholes without right without the right laws, but with, especially without the right enforcement, really we lack an ability to protect people in the apartment that they are in today from somebody who was ambitious and, and thought and out and scrupulous. And, scrupulous. Yeah. and also well thought out and well resourced to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. So that came up, and we've been looking at in the council, I've, I'm looking at some bills to make these agencies actually talk to each other, to slow down sometimes a process of things like demolition or eviction, mm -hmm. so, that, so that we are checking a number of boxes before we get there. Um, so that is one that actually was in the news just the last few days as well. Um, we're looking at some, some solutions to that. The second is we're actually voting on a bill in the council tomorrow about short-term rentals, typically what we call that Airbnb, um, which is to not say you can't do it in New York City because there are regulations that allow it, but to allow not to be a commercial enterprise. So if you live in a, if you live, if you own a building and it's all, for instance, rent-regulated or affordable apartments, you can't be renting those out to transient. You have to, those have to be, those have to stay as long-term housing. And this has been an issue. There's, there's two issues. One is people are going to complain to our, to our office about living next door to somebody who's constantly renting it out and the quality of life concerns with doing that. But the second part of it is just the just the affordability aspect. If you live in your home and you want to do it, that's allowed. If you if you are renting four apartments and renting them out, that's not allowed. So that's another issue. And then I think here in Stuyvesant Town, and through, as an example, looking at what the long term affordability is. So when we live in the neighborhood we're in right now, um, you know, looking at what are we doing you know, in the next 5, 10, and 20 years to put resources and money back into the communities to say we'll keep them affordable. How do we use the city's, um, city's resources and dollars, really, to create real meaningful affordable housing? But, I, you know, I get so concerned about the I, – I get concerned about the existing stock that, that is here and not letting people get lose their apartment and end up potentially in a homeless shelter system. Um, or, or otherwise, or doubling up with people, with a family member or something sure. like that. But the second thing is I think we need to have a better and clearer strategy about the affordable housing we are creating 
today. I think that almost every single person, developers and tenants and tenant organizers and elected officials, feel like our strategy today does not meet the demand for real affordable housing, and it's an expensive strategy. So we need the state's cooperation on that, but that's something that I'm really interested in is all new development going up. How much, how affordable, how expensive is it for us as a city, and tackling that problem. That will take me a little more time than, you know, the seventh month, but I, I hope I hope that um, – Give me nine months. Yeah. Nine months. And then, you're right. I hope one could be – and then if, if we do get the politics, you know, change up in Albany, I think we'll have a real opportunity to look at – uh, reducing money and the impact of real estate money in in politics, but yeah. also lobbying. Yeah, and 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 the influence that they can play in in, in holding laws back. But also, I think that we'll have an opportunity to actually change those laws to give people yeah. a, a stronger protection. Well, great. I mean, first of all, one of the questions that has to be posed is what is affordable. We call it affordable, but it's usually not very affordable. Right. Number right. one. Right. Number two, there is this existing. Uh, just stock of inventory of buildings that are abandoned yeah. that are in all neighborhoods actually across the city, even the Upper East Side. Yeah. And uh, it's just sitting there. And I think that there could be so many community-based yeah. projects yep. that could turn those buildings around and then the real estate values go up yeah. and people have more housing using what's actually already there. I know it's complicated. Yeah. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's simple, but it just is a beautification thing. It's it involves so many good yeah. things, you know. And no, you've got your hands full with this, no question. And when you get the people like Jared Kushner yeah. and the, multiplied by a thousand of unscrupulous landlords in New York City, you've really got a problem on your hands. We, and they're yeah. working and gaming the system, as you were saying before. With one uh, agency, they say one mm -hmm. thing. With another, they say something mm -hmm. else. I mean, I would like to see penalties actually yeah. for lying to government agencies. I think that's just horrific, and it leaves the tenant just with so few options. Yeah. And these poor people who have rent-stabilized apartments, which is the greatest protection yeah. that people have in New York City, for them to be jeopardized because of unscrupulous landlords, is a, it's untenable. No pun intended. I, I agree, and and you know we're I think in the kosher you know situation there's the potential for some criminal penalties uh, with it, and it, but the question is whether he will be liable, somebody else in his company, or a subcontractor that they hire that maybe have filed some of this paperwork, and, or maybe all of the above, or maybe all of the above, absolutely, <laughs> right. maybe all of the above, um, and so um, that you know, that's one issue we're looking at, but. The you know what we want to do is to make sure that the systems work so we don't have to catch people doing bad stuff that they can't exactly. even do it before it happens because often what happens is they do it they pay the penalty but the problem is still a problem exactly and so we're uh, yeah. we're looking at it we we have a thing in the city council we create I didn't I wasn't there yet but that was created like an office of a tenant advocate in the Department of Buildings that would be there to advocate on any building like an eviction demolition new construction to have an office resourced in there to look at it before anything happens and they have not we have not we, we created it but we have not really resourced it or funded it so we've, we we need to do a little bit more on that front as well, well I'm but, very glad yeah. to hear that yeah. and this sort of points a finger to one of the other subjects I want to ask you about, Keith, which is the uh, public education. Mm. So from my point of view, 
uh, intellectual education is only one facet of full education. Mm. The other is emotional. Yeah. Another is physical, uh, which is there, thankfully. Uh, but emotional and into moral education. And I don't mean that from any religious point of view at all. Maybe I should use the word instead ethical. So that the people like the Krishners mm. and the other landlords, of, there are too many to name here, mm. uh, would not grow up thinking that it's okay to treat people like this. Right. I've always been an advocate of something I refer to as moderate profit. Profit, fantastic. But, as the Green Party says, yeah. not profit before people or planet. People and planet yeah. first. Yeah. And then profit all you want. But not when it's at the expense of these two. And I, I think that that's a, a cultural change that I would like to see, and I don't know quite how. It's not actually legislation. Mm. It's creating um, an ethos in the city with wonderful young yeah. uh, bucks like you who are in city office and can change the energy, if you will, of people wanting to do the right thing. Yeah. And that includes all the way from, you know, mistreating people as a landlord to littering in the streets. Mm. It's the or the subways. It's, yeah. the, it's like a continuum. Your yeah, thoughts. well, you're, you're, you're totally right that I think we lack something of a – well, first of all, I like the idea of limited profit because, you know, but I'll just go back. In our housing sure. stock in the past, we've actually had certain developments that we call limited profit companies, which you could make a profit – but we sort of regulated um, uh, affordability in it, and we regulated well, even the rent stabilization uh, stabilization guidelines is a one means. Totally, of totally. Doing that. So the idea that yes, we, there is a reason we would want somebody to be incentivized to build something to make money off of it. Sure. There's a there, there there's an argument to make that that helps drive uh, people to do stuff, but that it should not be, be speculation of profits that are. Um, it shouldn't be rape. It shouldn't be rape. Yes, it should not be. Um, the the um, in terms of the education system, I think yes. that um, you know we have been in a constant struggle to improve outcomes around grades and things like that. When we talk about emotional support in the school system, yes. um, we probably don't have enough of it. When we talk about ethics and morals, yes, I think for sure we didn't we we don't teach that, mm -hmm. and we don't and we and we leave that something that people want. Um, out of the system. I, you know, we talk about emotional support, particularly right now. I mean, I just, I'll just on education, and I say this: like in a, in the United States of America right now, one out of three hundred United States citizens, or one hundred, well, I should say, what should say, one out of one hundred Americans is enrolled in the New York City public school system. Mm. So, uh, as a child, it's a little even a little bit less than that. It's like two hundred ninety-nine or something like that. Mm -hmm. Are students in there? And why when I, when I, when I say that is because we and, and then if you do the math on the rest of the, the rest of the country and how many how many of them are, are school age children, yes. um, we have a tremendous tremendous responsibility and a tremendous opportunity to change the entire face of this country in the New York City public school system. So and to create both ethical, moral, and well-educated students. So certainly when we talk about things that happen in the New York City classroom, we in some ways are talking about, definitely talking about the future of the city, and in many ways I think talking about the future of the country. And, um, and one of the things I get, I get really concerned about is when we talk about how many students are increasingly homeless, 
are increasingly in New York City, increasingly living in poverty. Malnourished. Are malnourished. Great point. We don't talk about that enough. Mm-hmm. Malnourished are hungry in the classroom, hungry. hungry in the school. Food insecure. Food insecure. Um, are uh, uh, clothing insecure? All of all of these things, and probably going to the school building every day with something of a challenge in terms of social and emotional connections to their peers, fears that um, you know either the clothing they wear is inadequate enough, that they don't have enough money to compete with other students. Uh, particularly if you talk about students, why that would they need money to compete with other students? When you mean enough? Fashion trends? In a fashion trend or keeping up with quality. It's, it's the traditional American got to keep up with the family next door. That's a problem and in itself, you know. Total problem in itself, <laughs> the consumerism right now. Yes, exactly. but, but I also will say that if you um, if you talk about uh, – there are some schools that are have a high poverty rate and a high uh, rate of need. And you have some, like in my district, that have do have a – that are still better with middle class and above schools – but they have we have transitional housing or shelters nearby. Students go there, and that puts a tremendous pressure on them. They probably go to school every day trying to hide the fact that they don't have a home or they don't have a permanent home. That's true. And that creates other things about laundry and food, and so um, maybe even cleanliness, cleanliness, sanitation, hygiene. Absolutely. But by the way, we talk to principals in those schools, and that's absolutely an issue. And so, how do you truly learn? If you have a concern about, uh, and I will just tell you one thing, I was with a city council member in, uh, I can say the city, Minneapolis this past weekend, mm-hmm. who talked, we were talking about poverty and other issues, and he made the point, he was like, before I was in the city council, he's like, I had a kind of low-paying job, but he was an artist, so, so uh-huh. and he talked about the struggle of when he, those times he didn't have a lot of money, and how basically... There was no way he could, like, do all the But he could be medical, going to see the doctor, and, and other challenges, eating or eating healthy. And this was somebody who's, a, who's a, now has achieved so much in his life. Sure. But how in the moments where he was at with less money in his bank account than that one desires, that he, the real challenge is faced with it. And he was okay. He made it out. But that's a challenge people face every single day with an uncertain end to it. It's not like, well, if I sell this painting or I do this job, I, I make the money. It is I am stuck in a job that doesn't pay. And so we are continuing to raise a generation of, I think, children that um, are facing those challenges. And I really, really feel strongly we have to be uh, helping to solve those problems for those families. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, the thing is this, on that note, because yeah. of my background in psychology, Chinese medicine, and stress management, honestly, Stress is being given a bad name in this society, on one hand, mm. because we need it. Funny as that may sound, yeah. we get nowhere without it. Yeah. Everything is stressful. Yeah. The problem really comes in, Keith, where we are overstressed, mm-hmm. when it's excess stress. Mm-hmm. And then it has the opposite effect on yeah. us, and it slows us down and retards our growth. Mm. But until then, it's actually promoting our growth. So there's nothing wrong with there being economic disparity. Mm -hmm. But when it's as extreme as it is in this city and in this country and, honestly, in this world, that's the course of another color. Mm. That becomes oppressive and suppressive Mm. and depressive, if you will. You know, it's a different story, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that's way out of balance 
that really needs to be corrected, and I appreciate yeah, the point you're making. Yeah. Uh, I'm just moving along because yeah, we sure. are so short on time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, public transportation mm. slash and then moving into environment a yeah. little bit. Um, what's the story? The subways are way too expensive. The buses are way too expensive. They're way too smelly. They're too big. <laughs> They're too noisy. Um, yeah. What are the what are some real solutions? And they're broken. They're not and working. They're broken, yeah. Right, right. I, I mean, I think that the MTA. I, I say this, and I mean this, and I've heard other people say it too, so I feel better about my belief. Is I really feel like if we don't solve our public transportation problem around it not working, it being expensive for many New Yorkers, yeah. um, it feeling like it's too crowded and 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 a bad experience. If we don't solve that whole problem. We will lose a a population that we really need here. People who are part of our our population, economic development, growth in the city. Look, Mayor uh, Bloomberg took the subway. Yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I know he got driven to the subway every day, and then he took it. Oh, but you're kidding he me. did. But <laughs> but 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 the idea oh, that well. but you but it does tell you something. He understood the importance of stepping foot on it every single day. Either way. Yeah. And that to, I never knew that. Yeah, it's before. a funny detail, but yeah, sort of. but I do think that we we do need. I take the subway every single day. Mm-hmm. I think we need or the bus. Yeah. I think we need elected official to do the same. I think that we need MTA and MTA board members who ride the subway. By the Surely. way. Surely. Um, I think that we need. Uh, it's in many ways a fantastic system. It is. It is still the best. It's, it's still just filthy and yeah, broken. Yeah. And expensive. And and we for what you get. Yeah, and we are we are underinvested in it. And we are that underinvestment over some some decades time is starting to is starting to pay off, and it will get worse. So now we're trying to turn the tide uh, on on the MTA in terms of funding, and but we have a lot of work to do. People, I think, when they swipe the fare or when their tax dollars go to it, either way, they're paying for it. True. And they want to know the money is getting spent appropriately. It's not getting wasted. They want to know it's not like going to projects. Humongous salaries to the Huge board salaries, members. salaries, overruns on projects. By the way, you swipe that fare for the MTA, there's not a guarantee it goes back into the subway system. It goes to can go to other projects in the state. That's so. There's, in the state? In the state. Not even just the not city. Not even in the city because uh, it goes to a state oh. fund. Um, and so at the minimum, you should it should be going right back into the system. Yeah. And then that money should be spent appropriately. Yeah. And then we should know that we're doing things to limit the amount of time projects take and that we're, we're – um, so I think there's a lot of accountability problems on the MTA, and I think the public mostly just wants it to work. They want us as elected officials to solve those That's problems right. for them. That's right. So um, and not, and a project's not to cost a billion dollars more than we thought there were, which could be a billion dollars to another project. So we have a we have a monumental task here. The city's done two things as a, in the as well as in the council mm-hmm. so far. One is we put we decided it was not historically the way it goes, but we we decided that. We decided that um, we would help contribute money that we didn't always do just to help to fix a temporary problem of investing in the subways. And second is we did decide it was too expensive. And for low-income New Yorkers who are below the poverty line, it actually could be a decision about, like, going to find a job uh, or not hopping the turnstile and committing a crime. So we created a program called Fair Fairs that would help those. But actually, veterans actually get 
to take advantage of it too. Excellent. And um, and and for those below the poverty line to help to give them half fare metro cards. And that Excellent. that makes somebody doesn't decide between committing a crime and hopping it's over. A step in the right step direction. in the right direction. I want to bring something else up. I yeah. know we're yeah, our sure. time is uh, tapering off yeah. here, but. You know, um, I think that it's always a good thing to study other systems Mm -hmm. in other parts of this country and in other countries. It doesn't matter. Uh, And one of the things that I came across and was working on a project many years ago is basically a form of monorail Mm. that you don't dig into an existing infrastructure with all that's there, which is taking place, of course, right here mm, on the right, Ultra right, 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 right here on uh, beautiful right. 14th Street, which is disrupting everybody's right. lives right. for right. years. Right. And uh, to me, it's just nonsensical because this is concrete. It's difficult yeah. to get right. through. It's, true. it's expensive, but you can lay down track. Uh, you can lay down poles mm. very easily and have a monorail go, and it has to be configured, of yeah. course. But it can be done, I think, for a fraction of the money and a fraction of the time. And I just don't know why that kind of thing hasn't yeah. actually even been considered. There was a proposal some years ago. So on, even on, it was actually on for 42nd Street to uh-huh. do like light rail there. Yes. Um, the you know I will say one thing: the 14th Street construction around the L train, which is what we're referring to. Yes. Um, there was a. There was a lot of different options in terms of what to do on 14th Street during during that period, and I supported a more comprehensive um, uh, strategy towards dealing with the traffic. Not just saying, you know, we'll add a few more buses, but we won't try to solve the traffic issue to get them there faster. We won't do select bus service on it. There was a lot of different proposals. Mm-hmm. I said, "Report one select bus service, move the buses fast, get them going, give people real options to get." to work on time during the thing. Yeah. But the one of the other reasons I brought I wanted to commit 14th Street to real transportation is I thought that it was one opportunity where we could be bold on transportation, where we could say we're going to close down a portion of 14th Street for most of the day during this one construction period of time and mm-hmm. see how we do. Yeah. And, the, and we, we, we get scared about closing streets As down. As a case study. As a case study. Because we get close, we are really concerned about closing streets down in New York City. Mm-hmm. We get really concerned about what people will say and what people will do. Especially a major thoroughfare. Especially a major thoroughfare, and I, I'm sensitive to that. Yeah. But the idea that we have to move people across and replace the L train was the opportunity to say, let's do it and let's see it. And so maybe what happens? So we're doing that. No, no. So, so okay. the plan that's proposed today oh, for the four, okay. is that it takes. So that's what's actually happening. So that is what we, we we're keeping our fingers crossed that it stays. Oh, but it okay. looks like that between uh from for uh, most of the day, which I think is 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. today is the proposal. Every day during that construction period, every weekday during that construction. Actually, mm-hmm. no, sorry, all seven days a week during that construction period, you will be they the vehicles will be limited on 14th Street to um, to only to buses, select bus service, including select bus service. And now, and they, I actually didn't totally like this addition, but they are allowing it, local vehicles and deliveries. Um, meaning that, because my feeling was you could get out of a cab on the avenue and whatever, mm-hmm. but they're allowing for like cabs to go through, but they have to they have to get off immediately. But the proposal I had was do select bus service, commit 14th Street to select buses, and some other modes of transportation as well. 
if you care, bicycles, I so hope. bikes, bikes are the thank you. Buy a full, fully part of so they're I'm a bicyclist. That's but important. but you know what's interesting is I actually advocated for 14th Street to be bike lanes and buses only. The plan wow. today is a little different. It's called it's, politics. It's called politics. <laughs> uh, the bus lanes, the bike lanes will be on the side streets on 13th and 12th, and the and they'll allow the local deliveries and ve- and vehicles. I was probably, and I don't mean to say it's anybody, probably the only elected official who was really out there willing to say buses and bikes on 14th Street only. And the reason why is if you care about light rail or monorail, or you mm-hmm. care about biking or this, this was an opportunity in a crisis to say, let's see what it looks like. And if it doesn't work, we go backwards, we take it back, we take it out, or we change it. But let's actually go for it. And I'm a little upset we didn't get all the way there, but I, this is still a better plan than the you alternative. We got close. We got close. We got close. And I think that in New York you we need – You can feel good about that. Yeah, I, I do feel like yeah. I do. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, right. Um, but, I, but we need an imagination at times. And Very true. And an opportunity to offer us opera imagination. And so um, we, we – by the way, and by only advocating for that big plan do we get something close to it. So, so I'm happy That's about that. That's a very important point you just yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. Think big. Yeah. Ask for everything, and then accept what you got. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> so we'll we'll take what we can uh, forget for the time being. But um, but I but I did think it was uh, an opportunity, and I think we should continue to think big about transportation. Good, I like that. Yeah. Well, I asked big because I asked for an hour from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, almost forty minutes. Yeah, I appreciate. It. <laughs> we'll do it again. Absolutely. Thank you, Zoe. Yeah, thank you. You're so welcome. Cool. Such a pleasure to have you thank on, you. Keith. This is Councilmember. Keith Powers, who, as you can tell, is doing wonderful work here in New York City, and let it be an example to politicians everywhere in this country and beyond of how you really can state something and then do it. And it's wonderful to find politicians who are really working on behalf of the people instead of themselves. They are included. They will get benefit as well. And they have the adulation and the advocacy of the people who have helped to put them into office. Well, anyway, I want to thank you all for listening today. Uh, This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Make sure to come visit us at www.abetterworld.tv. We love your... uh, your comments and your suggestions, you can write to me at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr, my initials, at abetterworld.net. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. 